Welcome back to Design Emergency, the podcast and platform that Alice Rossler and I, Paola Antonelli, founded in 2020 to highlight how design can make the world a better place for all humans, all species, and all ecosystems. In other words, to highlight how important design is in the world. Pretty much every other week, we speak to another guest that has a role in this important movement. And this week, the guest is Fernando Lapos a Mexican designer that is now back in Mexico after a long stay in London, where he studied product design at Central St. Martins. Fernando's powerful and elegant objects actually contain universes, and he uses these objects and the materials they're made of to highlight conditions of injustice, of exploitation, of historical imbalance, and even more. His work comes from deep research and brings out unique stories and designs that are tied to specific places and their people, especially Mexico, where he often collaborates with local communities to support them economically and also to shed light on their struggles in today's interconnected and global world. I think that his projects are a little bit like eye-opening lessons. They cover topics like sustainability, like biodiversity loss, community changes, migration, and he uses design to document these issues and propose creative solutions. So welcome to Design Emergency, Fernando. Thank you, Paola. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited for this. How did you become a designer? Uh, what was the path? Well, I think, I think for me, design is about trying to look for solutions, but my methodology is always to ask for a lot of questions before presenting the solutions, you know? And I think uh, my design philosophy is really about creating systems, systems that, that truly work, uh, as opposed to just innovating with materials. Uh, materials are extremely important for me because I think, um, you know, it's kind of the core of the project, but uh, I chose I choose materials based not only on their materiality or their material properties, but also because of their sort of historical and cultural charge. You know, um, I'm really really interested in in what the relationship with that material is uh, from a certain community. Uh, you know, starting with something very very localized to all the way to try to understand, you know, why there's some complications when you take it to the opposite side of the spectrum where you go very, very macro, you know? So I think this, this focusing on the, on the micro to then open it up to the macro uh, is something that, that I always like to do. And I feel like design, you know, has this ability to present this research in a creative way, in an aesthetic way, but in a very approachable way, you know, again, if you compare it to art or maybe even some kinds of design, my design philosophy is about it being intellectually accessible for everyone. You know, you don't need to have a design education to, to understand it or an art education to understand it. That's something that I really kind of strive for uh, within my practice. And that's the way it should be. But so what's, what comes first? Is it the material or the issue? Like if, 
if we take a, a project like Totomoxle, which is the project that I would like to talk with you about now, um, Totomoxle is an epic endeavor, right? You know, it's about uh, a, a community in the state of Puebla. It's about reintroducing the traditional heritage heirloom maids that had been wiped out by NAFTA, you know, the agreement that happened in 94 that opened the borders between Mexico and the United States. So what happened first? Was it the issue of NAFTA? Was it the people of Puebla? Was it maize? What happened and how did this come about? Um, it started because I had a bit of a life crisis in London. I was really unhappy with the work that I was making um, and just my living situation in general. Why is that? Was was it was it just too detached from reality? Was it too artistic? <laughs> no, actually, it was. Um, I mean, I have a European passport now, but back in the day, I didn't, and so uh, part of the crisis of the financial crisis was also leading to very very strict immigration policies in the UK. So I was the first, basically, generation or the first class to graduate without the right to stay. Uh, to try and find work. And they changed that maybe two, two months before I graduated. So, you know, your life plan was like, okay, yeah, I have a whole year to try and look for, you know, proper employment. And it went to, no, you have two months to find, you know, a salary that at the time was just impossible. So I decided to apply for a scholarship, uh, which was more about being an entrepreneur. Um, at the time I made this little device that could make glasses out of sugar. And so I was doing, you know, sort of events for, at the beginning it was alcohol brands and museums and it was cool. It was things that you could, you know, drink alcohol in and then eat them. Uh, but it very quickly turned into just being a, like a glorified catering service. <laughs> um, I hit rock bottom, uh, I think, when I had to you know, do it for an insurance company Christmas party in London. And I was like, okay, this is it, no more. <laughs> I went back to my studio and I remember just taking a knife and, and, and cutting up all the, the silicon molds that, you know, I used to make these things. And I was like, that's it, I'm going to Mexico. I need to find myself again. So I landed in Mexico because I applied for a residency in this cultural center uh, that was started by an artist and activist called Francisco Toledo, who was really, really a crucial character for turning the city of Oaxaca into this mecca of indigenous culture uh, in, in the south of Mexico. Um, and the, the place where I was staying was one of the many foundations that he started, which was called El Casa. And um, when I arrived, I mean, the whole focus of the residency was to look at art and food. Um, but when I arrived, coincidentally, it was a very sort of tumultuous time in Mexico because the Supreme Court was uh, going to deliberate on whether to reinforce uh, and make a permanent ban on GMOs throughout the country, not only for corn, but GMOs in general. So uh, there was a lot of protest, there was a lot of activism, and this cultural center where I was, was a place where a lot of uh, artists would go and create the, the artwork for the protest. So it was really hard not to get involved in it. Um, but again, I think I was seeing a lot of political protest with it, and I, 
I thought, you know, they're probably going to make it. They're probably going to ban GMOs, which eventually they did. Um, but I saw it as, okay, that was a political gain, but you also have to look at the economics problems behind it because, you know, GMOs are banned today, but F1 hybrids, which are essentially, you know, not GMOs because it doesn't have the genome of another organism, but they are genetically identical. So, you know, most of the cornfields throughout Europe and North America, when you look at them, they all grow, you know, exactly to the same height. They're super tightly packed together. Um, there's it's the, you, it's the industrial corn, right? Yes. It's the industrial corn that has wiped out all other types. Yes, of course. Yes, and the, probably the, 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 the biggest problem with that system is that you can't take a seed from your corn that you planted and put it back into the ground because it's like having kids with your twin brother or sister. You know, you start to have genetic problems uh, pretty much straight away from the first generation of offspring. So that wasn't going to get banned. And that is the main source of uh, corn plantations in Mexico still. So it was a way of looking at, okay, how is it that farmers are not being able to make money out of the heirloom varieties and are being priced out of this? So that was the focus of my three months of residency. Um, the sort of aha moment was when I said, okay, the leaves are also colorful. And what I really wanted to avoid was to fall into the trap of, you know, just taking the grains and selling them for more money or you know collaborating with a with a celebrity chef or something which is what a, it's what a lot is happening especially in mexico and now the united states so since you said that you usually design systems and toto moxley is a systems could could you describe it for people just like from scratch if you were to explain what toto moxley is yeah so toto moxley is a veneer made with the husks of uh, native corn they are naturally colorful. We don't dye them or color them in any way. That's how they grow from the ground. And uh, I guess the material innovation part is we've managed to find a technique to turn it into almost like a card system, uh, a card stock, um, not too dissimilar from a paperback wood veneer. Um, and then we use primarily marketry techniques to assemble all of these different colors that you know, are so wide um, that you almost start to lose the repeat and the patterns, you know? Um, and, and so that's how we create the furniture and that's how we create the material. But as a system, what we've been doing is we've partnered up with the world's largest seed bank that specializes in corn. Um, we got seeds from their vault that had been stored since the 1950s and we reintroduced them and we created a workshop directly within the community uh, where farmers can take these harvested uh, leaves that we also subsidize. So we subsidize the farmers so that they can cover all the expenses of growing the corn um, and then they make another uh, source of income in their community workshop where they turn it from raw material to something that we can work for furniture making. 
So, you know, it's a real system because it is really looking at everything, all the parts of the maize and of the corn, of course, and also the people that mm -hmm. have to do something by replanting heritage corn, at least at the beginning, they have to do something to counter these lashed prices instead of the industrial corn that comes from the north uh, through the mm -hmm. North American Free Trade Agreement. So it really is a very political uh, po project. And I know that that, in a way, um, initiated this whole interest of yours for rural design, right? So what do you mean by rural design? Well, when I was in university, um, you know, the way they, they taught us was very much looking into, I suppose, you know, companies like IDO have really formalized this idea of, of human-centered design and, you know, ergonomics and all of these things. And I just felt like human-centered design uh, at the time was... I mean, at least how I was taught was super focused on an urban human uh, and an urban human often located in, in developed countries. So for me, looking at the rural design is looking at, you know, still designing with a human center approach, but designing for humans that are naturally a lot more in tune with nature, you know, so by de facto, you're also designing with nature and you're also uh, amplifying these knowledge and these traditions and the sensitivity that they have to really understand nature and, and potentialize it. Um, so the, the, the approach is still similar in the sense that there is problem solving, but it's much more focused on, you know, problems that go all the way from you have to have a good soil to have a good seed to have a good uh, material, you know, um, so it, it goes way beyond just simply producing that material. It, it has to be very global and very enveloping and it has to be, you know, an intertwining of the local society with the local environment. That's for me is rural design. And it really is interesting, as you were mentioning before, your interest in the local, because the local then reverberates globally by looking at these experiments that then can be not really replicated, but can inspire um, also examples elsewhere. You, uh, you're particularly interested in conflict fruits, because I understand that another project that you're developing is another project that is a blight from NAFTA, which is the avocado. Can you please talk about your experiment and your research with avocado? Yeah, well, this is this is really a preview that you're getting here because um, I'm I'm officially launching this project in in a couple months. But um, and I can't wait because let me <laughs> just give a shout out to my beloved colleagues at the National Gallery Victoria in Melbourne that are having another triennial. Ewan McQuine and Simone Liamon and their collaborators. I'm always jealous of what they do, and I'm jealous also of this project. So thank you for speaking about it. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the when, when I was doing the research and I found that both of these projects basically have the same source of the problematic, uh, which came with the NAFTA free trade agreement, uh, my mind was kind of blown. But um, to, to quickly summarize what I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking at avocados, but I'm looking at sort of the very dark side of avocados and making a case that there could be a comparison with a blood diamond at the end of the day, you know, it's, uh, it's avocados have become these super popularized fruits. Um, 
almost by design of supply. So meaning it's a, it's an engineer demand, really. No one was dying to eat an avocado or even knew of an avocado, you know, up until not too long ago. And it was it was a fruit that was that was very exotic, that was wasn't properly understood. Like, for example, I remember when I arrived in England, it was basically impossible to get an avocado. And once it started to become uh, commonplace in places like Tesco and all these supermarkets, you even started to have, you know, injuries that were reported at the NHS, which were called the avocado hands because people didn't even know how to cut it open, you know, and they were stabbing themselves. Um, so all of these optic in in the popularity of the fruit meant that huge, huge, huge amounts of money were created. And this has to do with Mexico because Mexico is the biggest producer of avocado by far in the world. Um, it was also traded as some sort of, you know, Mexican cuisine thing in the form of guacamole. So 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 Mexico was very important culturally as well to communicate the value of the plant or the fruit. Um, but all of these uh, income is creating really serious problems in Mexico, namely deforestation, uh, water issues. But perhaps uh, the darker side of it is, I mean, just violence, violence and death, uh, murder, kidnap, um, horrible violence, extortion. So this is what the project is looking at. It's really a, a, a quite a robust uh, research project that really looks at something that I try to get across with all of my practice in general, which is that the environmental crisis that we're living in is not really a thing of just men versus nature. It's men versus men. And it's all, often, you know, the people that are the most vulnerable that suffer the most. And for me in Latin America and, and in Mexico in particular, this is the biggest threat to the environment. It's not whether your plastic bottle is going to be compostable or not, it's whether people are going to kill each other uh, to go and cut down a forest. And this happens because of the totally unacceptable levels of social inequality. Um, and so I, I, I feel like it's sort of my my duty as a designer and, uh, and almost as a journalist to be able to showcase this and to be able to, you know, really piece this apart so that people start to make this connection that unless we solve the inequality crisis, we're not going to be able to solve the environmental crisis. You said that Mexico is the most dangerous country to be an environmental activist and now you're moving back. So are you nervous about it? <laughs> I mean, there is some concern for sure. Um, in Mexico, if you are talking about these things, you are sort of sticking your neck out there and that is a dangerous thing. But I feel like as a designer, if you're gonna be talking about these topics, you have to have some skin in the game, you know? And I feel like my approach to this research is to physically situate myself in the locations where these people are being affected. I feel like it's a little bit cowardly to just do your research from the safety of your computer, you know, in the city or in another country. So, so I always like to go and, and, and carry out this research in person. And to be honest, the more I meet these people, the more I realize that proportionally the risk that I am taking compared to the risk that these activists and these environmentalists are taking is minimal, you know, 
the initial moment that I decided to really take this approach, looking much more into the violence was because I had a personal experience of meeting uh, one of the most prominent activists uh, in Mexico that was uh, responsible for really formalizing the sanctuary for the monarch butterflies in a very, very uh, important forest uh, where the monarchs basically migrate from all of North America into this, you know, they all funnel down into this one forest in Mexico to winter. And uh, this man whose name was Homero Gomez Gonzalez was a key character from for, you know, making sure that these butterflies were protected and that forest was protected. And uh, when I was getting ready to go and interview him, he went missing. Uh, his family couldn't find him. Uh, a massive search and rescue operation was uh, taken underway. And um, unfortunately, his body was retrieved uh, a couple of weeks later with signs of torture. Uh, he was murdered. He was murdered with total impunity. Um, and, you know, this is this is a story that repeats itself many, many times. Latin America is the, the most dangerous region of the world to be an activist. And Mexico tops that list, you know, just that last year, 54 activists were murdered in the country. And for me, this is this is something that I really like don't understand and I really want to push forward. How come we have these multinational treaties? How come uh, products and the interest of these massive companies that go across borders, um, you know, can be super influential in the politics of another country when it when it comes to uh, economic treaties? But when it comes to human rights, when it comes to violence, uh, it's very easy to turn a blind eye and there's no sort of accountability with the interconnection of that of that trade. Um, in the case of avocados, there is just so much money being made. I mean, more than $4 billion a year that this causes inaction in both sides of the border. You know, the United States is by no means pressuring Mexico to, to clean its act when it comes to deforestation and violence towards activists that are trying to protect the forests uh, that are very, very quickly becoming avocado groves. Many in the world would not expect design to be involved in such matters, while for you and for I and for Alice and for many of us, it's absolutely par for the course, we must. People still think of design as objects, sometimes cute objects, superfluous, but it's not that way and we know it. But I wanted to ask you, what is the role of the object in all this? Will objects play a part? Are they Trojan horses? Are they diamonds? What are they? I mean, when you look at previous civilizations and you try to figure out how they lived, uh, you often look at anthropological vestiges which in most cases are objects you know so i think objects have been historically since the beginning of time uh record keepers of moments cultural moments that societies go through so what are objects if not design pieces you know ob objects have been designed since the beginning of time and meaning was assigned to objects since the beginning of time through design so I think it's that's it. You know, it's it's not it's not it's nothing contemporary about uh, designing an object that carries meaning. Uh, they are vessels of information, and um, 
often, you know, even more powerful than art or than scripture. It's it's really because I find like art and scripture uh, can be very curated, whereas objects through design just be, by the sheer amount of production, because there has that functionality to them, uh, tell, in my view, a lot more from from a particular time, you know, from the materials that are used to the cultural connotations, to fashions, to trends, to priorities and desires and ways of consuming. Uh, that's, you know, how we've analyzed societies in the past. And I think that's how societies in the future will analyze us as well. Indeed, there are carriers of meaning and containers of universes, as we said at the beginning. Well, Fernando, it's uh, it's amazing to hear you speak um, as design, as an agent of change, as an agent of revolution also, and as an agent of activism. And we cannot wait to see what you will prepare for the National Gallery Victoria Triennial. We will publish it as soon as we can see it. And in the meantime, I want to remind you all that we've been listening to Fernando La Paz, designer out of Mexico, trained in London, now back in Mexico, talking about his fabulous work with materials, of course, but also with cultures and with issues that are happening in rural or let's say non-urban conditions in the world. Fernando, it was Amazing to have you on Design Emergency. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Paola. And thank you for listening. And we will wait for you all on the next episode of Design Emergency, the podcast that Alice Rosner and I founded to highlight ways in which design can help improve the destinies of the world, of all species, and of all ecosystems.